this morning, turn with me uh, to the book of Hebrews, and let's go to chapter 8. We want to look at this position of the new covenant. Now, Jesus is the new covenant in the New Testament. We no longer need the Old Testament covenant made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but now the new covenant is completed in and by Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to remember this because a lot of times people say, well, it seems like you're getting down on the Old Testament covenant. But Jesus said, I did not come to destroy the law, but I came to fulfill the law. I came to complete the law. I came to finish the law. And now this was complete at the cross at Calvary uh, 2,000 years ago. I want to look at this word covenant because uh, we understand that it means a promise. It means a contract. It means an agreement. And I think today in our society, you know, we can have a handshake. Or we can draw up some papers. But so easily they can be broken. And so we need to look at this covenant. Webster's Dictionary says that a covenant is a serious agreement. It's between two people or a group of people or a nation or a group of nations. It's a promise. It's a contract. But yet we're reminded that man can break a promise. Man can break a contract. It so easily takes place. Now, in the Hebrew, when we look at the word covenant, it means a disposition of property by a will or otherwise, a covenant, an agreement. But I like this translation in the Hebrew, to cut or to divide and to come to that agreement. And yet again, it can so easily be broken, but not the promises of God. In the Greek, it says that a covenant is a promise undertaking a human or divine nature, a promise or undertaking on the part of God, the promises of God, they're sure. As we look at our scriptures, as we look at Genesis to Revelation, as we have Old Testament, New Testament, the promises of God, I can honestly tell you, are sure. And so this covenant, Unger's Bible Dictionary probably hit it on the head of the nail. He says this, a covenant is a cutting, and he makes reference to Genesis Chapter 17, where the covenant of circumcision, the cutting away of the flesh, the term applied to various transactions between God and man, man and his fellow man. The word allied together in the New Testament also brings us to that place of a covenant, a disposition, or a will respecting a person or thing is used. Sometimes it's translated the word testament, at other times, the word covenant, and this is why we use the word the New Testament or the New Covenant. Now, let me give you some examples if you're taking notes here uh, this morning. In Genesis chapter 9, God made a covenant with Noah, and he gave the promise of a rainbow. In Genesis chapter 12, we see the covenant that God made with Abraham, solid covenant. In Genesis chapter 17, that covenant with Abraham again of circumcision. And circumcision was to separate Israel from the heathen nations. In Exodus chapter 34, uh, the covenant with Israel, and this was the law that was handed down uh, through Moses, the tablets of the law. 
Now remember that those first tablets were broken even by uh, Moses himself. And then there was a second set of tablets that were made. Now, here's another covenant. There's so many others, but the covenant that was made with King David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. But the New Testament covenant, a term describing a portion of the Bible revealed in the fulfillment of the Old Testament and dealing with the life, death, resurrection, and the ascension of the prophesied Messiah, Jesus Christ, and the inauguration of the new dispensation or the new covenant. The Christian church. Now, uh, scholars will agree that the new covenant began. Now, we know that it took place at Calvary 2,000 years ago. But to bring this dispensation uh, of the church, in Acts chapter 2, it says that the Holy Spirit was poured out. We see the 120 that are in the upper room, and they're waiting for Pentecost. The promise of the Holy Spirit that would fall And we see in Joel chapter 2 that that promise was given and it came to pass, church. Now, what's interesting, here we are uh, almost 2,000 years later, and that promise of the baptism of the Holy Spirit is still in effect today. There are those that said uh, that the Holy Spirit was dispensed only in the apostolic age. Well, church, this morning, if the Holy Spirit is still not here and being poured out upon the church, then we're in trouble. We need the power of the Holy Spirit. We need the unction of the Holy Spirit. And so we're going to look at this, and we'll speak about that later on in the study. But Hebrews chapter 8, I want you to put on your thinking caps. This letter is being written to Hebrew Christians that were coming out of Judaism. And all of a sudden, you're being told that the old covenant is is dissolved. It's done with. It's finished. That's a hard concept. Because we all come from backgrounds concerning traditions, rituals, rites, customs. I was coming out of Catholicism some uh, 30 years ago, and all of a sudden, that's abolished. That's done with. It's a hard concept to take. But we understand as we come to the cross, the new covenant now is Christ. In all reality, I don't need anything else. Now, last week we began and chapter 7 of the book of Hebrews, and we come to that conclusion that Jesus Christ is our final high priest. In fact, he sits in the heavenly places right now at the right hand of God, and the Bible says he makes intercession for us. And so the writer of Hebrews is going to bring this portion back as we begin in Hebrews chapter 8. But then he's going to go right into that position of the new covenant. But basically, our high priest, which is Christ, our final high priest, he dies on the cross once and for all. He's the complete sacrifice. We don't need another high priest. We don't need the priesthood anymore. The completion is with Christ. This new covenant now is with Christ. And so when we begin to see this, we didn't abolish the Old Testament, but it's completed now. It's finished. Remember when Jesus dies on the cross, he gives up the the ghost, and he says, it's done. It's finished. And so this beautiful picture here. So let's begin here in Hebrews chapter 8. And again, we're going to go back to the priesthood for just a little bit. Look at verse 1 now. He says, now, uh, this is the main point of the things uh, we are saying. 
what we've been studying from Hebrews chapter 7. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in the heavenly places. So the writer of the book of Hebrews brings it to this place, and he says, let me sum it all up by saying this. Our high priest now, Jesus Christ, sat down in the place of the highest honor in heaven at the right hand of God. We developed that last week. This is our new high priest, our completed high priest. This is the new covenant in Jesus Christ, which is our Messiah, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father. And the Bible says that he makes intercession for me. He makes intercession for you. Now, I want you to write down this verse. In Matthew chapter 26, verse 66. But let me set it up for you. Jesus is standing before the 70 elect of Israel. It's called the Sanhedrin. And he's being drilled, basically, by Caiaphas, the high priest. And Caiaphas asks him, are you the son of God? And then Jesus responds in Matthew 26, verse 66. He says, it is as you said. Nevertheless, I say to you, hereafter, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Jesus declares to him, the time will come when I will go back to my rightful position. I will sit at the right hand of God, majesty on high. And we know from other passages of Scripture that Jesus makes intercession for you, for me. But notice the promise of the second coming. Again, we have promises. If Jesus came in his first advent, what makes us think he's not going to come in the second advent, which is the parousia of Christ? The time will come. He's declaring this to the religious leaders in Israel at this time. Caiaphas was the high priest. And for this reason, they wanted to stone Jesus. Now, if you're taking notes, in Mark chapter 16, verse 19, Luke chapter 22, verse 69, Acts chapter 2, verse 33, Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. And these are just a few. These verses tell us that Jesus sits at the right hand of God, the right hand of majesty right now. He's sitting in his rightful position. But I like this translation. In Romans chapter 8, verse 34, not only is he sitting at the right hand of majesty or the right hand of God, but the Bible says in Romans 8, 34, he's making intercession uh, for us. He's praying for me. He's praying for you. You see, in Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, it tells us that Satan is the accuser of the brethren. In fact, he accuses us before the Lord day and night. In the book of Job, we, we study and, and the first two chapters, and you see how Satan went before the throne of grace. And he made accusations concerning Job. And eventually, God lowers the hedge, the protection that was around Job. And Job was tested by the enemy, but he could not take his life. And so we have access to Jesus at the right hand of the Father, and he makes intercession for you, for me. Now, if you're taking notes again in Acts chapter 7, 
we know that Stephen is the first martyr to the church. Stephen is standing before the same Sanhedrin that Jesus stood before. And they were questioning him. But if you study the whole chapter in Acts chapter 7, Stephen takes them through the Old Testament. This was a, a servant of the Lord. This was a deacon of the early church. And he takes them from the time of Genesis to the present time. And he ministers to their hearts. But I love this verse in Acts chapter 7, verse 56. Stephen says to the Sanhedrin, I, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Oh, this had to, you know, frustrate Caiaphas at that time. Because he's hearing the words that are now being said by Stephen, the same words that were said by Jesus. Jesus, as our high priest, he sits at the right hand of majesty. He sits at the right hand of God, and he makes intercession for us. Church, that ought to just make us to, to come rejoicing. Lord, thank you that you care for me, that you love me that much. And there's such a love and a compassion and a grace of God for, for you, for me. For the last 2,000 years, think about that. Now, let's continue. He's still talking about the high priest. Look at verse 2. A minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected, and not man. Now, you have to understand with the Jewish mind. The Jews would look at the temple, and it was everything to them. I mean, it was a great edifice. The Bible says it took over 40 years to build. Remember that Jesus said, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. He was speaking of his body. But they were looking at the edifice of, of the temple. It was a great temple. And yet in 70 A.D., we know that the temple was destroyed. Now here in verse 2, uh, still speaking of Jesus, our, our new covenant, Jesus, our Messiah, the Son of God, our high priest in heaven, he ministers. Listen. He's a servant of the sanctuary. But notice that God erected this tabernacle that Jesus is ministering in. It's the tabernacle in heaven because it was not made by hands of men, but it was made by God. This Jesus of Nazareth, our Messiah, as we already uh, shared over and over, who sits at the right hand of majesty on high, he's praying. Now, not the earthly temple, because this was destroyed in 70 A.D. by Titus and the Roman army. But Jesus is speaking about the tabernacle in heaven. And we're going to describe here how this was just a picture, a shadow, a foreseeing of what's going to take place in heaven. Look at verse 3. For every high priest now is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it is necessary that this one... Now, the word one should be capitalized for you. Also have something to offer. This one has to be Christ, our complete high priest now. So in the Old Testament, a high priest is appointed. He comes out of the tribe of Levi. We discussed that last week. He's appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. So then the writer tells us it's necessary that this one, capitalization, speaking of our Messiah, offer something also and he did church jesus offered himself as the complete sacrifice what a picture no longer the uh, 
you know, the animal sacrifices, but Jesus becomes the complete sacrifice. Jesus, our final high priest. And now, Jesus, our covenant, our new covenant. He continues, look at verse 4. For if he were on earth, because we know that Christ is in heaven now, for if he were on earth, he would not be a priest, since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law. On earth, Jesus did not serve in the office of a priest, because he was not of the tribe of Levi. He was of the tribe of Judah. But see, a priest in the Old Testament of the tribe of Levi only served as a priest. Jesus as king and priest, he becomes our Messiah. Now, he's in the heavenly places, and he's offering prayers and supplication there. But Jesus offered himself at Calvary 2,000 years ago as a complete sacrifice once and for all. Jesus took the office as a king and a priest, and he ministers to the Jew and to the Gentile. The priesthood could only minister to the Jews. But as a king and a priest, he ministers to both. Now here's that copy. Here's that foreshadow. Here's the picture of what we see in the Old Testament. Look at verse 5. Speaking of the office of the earthly priest, who served the copy and shadow of the heavenly things, as Moses was divinely instructed when, it, when he was about to make the tabernacle. For he said, see that you make all things according to the pattern shown to you in the mountain. Moses received, in a sense, the blueprints of this tabernacle. And then we know eventually that Solomon built the temple. David was not allowed to build the temple. So the priesthood offered the earthly form of the heavenly tabernacle that God instructed Moses how to build it. The earthly tabernacle given to Moses, listen to this, church, was a picture. He says it was a picture of the things to come, a shadow of the things to come, a heavenly tabernacle, a copy. And so what Moses was doing was exactly what God said. I want you to write this down in your notes. You need to study Exodus chapter 25. In Exodus chapter 25, it says uh, concerning Moses, this is what you're supposed to do. The offerings, the Ark of the Covenant, the table of showbread, uh, the golden lampstand. Now in verse 40, Exodus 25, Moses, God says, see that you make them according to the pattern which was shown to you on the mountain. In other words, God again gave the blueprints for the tabernacle. And again, it's a picture of what's in heaven. When finally the temple was built in Jerusalem, the people idolized the temple. But it was man-made. The temple in heaven, God made. Now again, what we shared in Exodus chapter 25, the offerings, Jesus becomes that offering. The Ark of the Covenant. Now, if you study the Old Testament, inside the Ark of the Covenant, we have the Ten Commandments, which represents the law. You have the jar of manna, manna that uh, represents the provisions of God during the 40 days, uh, 40 years of the wilderness. And then the rod of Aaron that budded forth that represents the priesthood in the Old Testament. Now, on the top of the tabernacle, 
or the Ark of the Covenant, that is, is the mercy seat. Jesus becomes the mercy seat for each and every one of us. Jesus, the Bible says that he is the propitiation for our sin. The word propitiation is just a big word that says he becomes our mercy seat. He becomes a complete sacrifice. Jesus did everything for us. This is that new covenant. There's nothing wrong with the old covenant. He completes it, though. He doesn't destroy it. He completes it. He brings it to the conclusion. He becomes the complete sacrifice, the final priest. He becomes this covenant now. Now we come into verse 6, and now he begins to speak about this covenant. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry, inasmuch as he also mediator of a better covenant. This is speaking about Christ, which was established on a better promise. The old covenant closed men out from approaching God. Jesus, our new high priest, has opened the door for man to approach God through his only begotten son, Jesus Christ. This is what God did for us, church. It says here that Jesus is the better covenant. Now, notice the word excellent ministry. The word for excellent here is translated different. A different work, a new work, a better covenant, a better sacrifice. Uh, the word better speaks of a stronger promise, a stronger covenant. All of this took place uh, through the mediator, Jesus Christ, the bridge builder, the go-between. You see, when we would come to the temple, we would depend upon the priest. He would go before us. But when we come to Christ, he's our complete high priest. He makes it possible. We can't get to God unless there's a mediator. And that mediator now is Jesus Christ. Vine's Dictionary of Greek Words says this, that the word to mediate, Jesus is our go-between. Jesus is our intercessor. Jesus is the stronger message. What a promise that we have. Now, why is Jesus the stronger message? Because he brings forth, listen, the message of hope, and that hope is the cross. The old covenant relied upon what man had to do. The new covenant relies upon what Jesus has accomplished at the cross 2,000 years ago. Now we see the meaning. When he dies on the cross, he says, it is finished. Jesus becomes the bridge now uh, to God. It's done. You see, we can't approach a holy God. We need a mediator. And that mediator is the Lord Jesus Christ. Job is considered the oldest book in the Bible. We have the book of Genesis. You know, we have the chronological order. But we see Job. And it's believed that Job is the oldest book. Job was looking for a days man, a mediator, a go-between, a bridge to get to God. And so the plan was always set in place, church, for us to come uh, to this place of a mediator. Now, if you're taking notes, back in Leviticus chapter 26, 
the description of what God uh, expects from the children of Israel in the Old Testament. And in a sense, it's not any different from what he expects in the New Testament. Let me read Leviticus 26, verse 1. God said to the children of Israel, Make no idols for yourself, nor carved images for yourself, nor uh, sacred pillars for yourself, nor engraved stones for yourself. What was God looking for? But he was looking for obedience. And if we obey God, then God is going to bless us. The importance of obedience. Now, if you've been studying with us on Wednesday nights, we've been going through the Old Testament. And we've already accomplished in the Old Testament, in the kings, that's where we're at. And we looked at the northern kingdom. At this time, in the history of Israel, there's a division. Israel split in half, in a sense. There are ten tribes in the northern kingdom, and there are two tribes in the southern kingdom. Well, we've come to that position now. The northern kingdom, which is called Israel, has been judged. The Assyrians have come in after three years of sieges and have taken them into captivity. Now, according to the chronological order, about 135 to 150 years later, the Babylonians are going to come, and they're going to judge the southern kingdom, which is called Judah. You would think that they would see the example of the northern kingdom, and they would not partake of the sins of the Old Testament saints. In other words, we, this is what our brothers and sisters did. Let us not do that. Now, last week in 2 Kings, the southern kingdom, uh, we were studying of Hezekiah, a good king. And Hezekiah brought in reform. He tore down, you know, the idol worship and the high places and all of the different, you know, they were even worshiping the pagan gods, the foreign gods. And so Hezekiah did a great job. But then his son comes into the picture. His son is named Manasseh. And his son was evil. You think he would have learned from his dad, but he did not. In fact, the Bible says that he was the worst king, and he brought idol worship into the temple. God says, you're not to have these idols before me. And so it doesn't change. We need a mediator. Moses was that mediator in the Old Testament as he brought forth the law. But here in the New Testament, our mediator is Christ Jesus. Oh, church, how we need a mediator. Let me give you two verses. Uh, I want you to, well, let's just turn to them real quick. Let's go to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. Because I cannot get, you know, I cannot approach a holy God. You cannot approach a holy God. When Jesus dies on the cross, the Bible says that the temple curtain rent in two that kept man from entering the Holy of Holies. Only the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies once a year on the day of Yom Kippur or the Day of Atonement. But listen to what Paul writes to Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. For there is one God, one mediator, between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Verse 6, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. You see, Jesus paid the full price. Jesus is the full ransom 
No longer the animal sacrifices. Jesus becomes the complete Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. You see, church, he earned that position, but it made us accessible to come to God through his son, Jesus Christ. Now go back to Galatians chapter 3 and look at verses 19 and 20. Beautiful picture here again. We're looking at that position of a mediator. And then we're looking at that position about the law. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 19, what then, Paul says, was the purpose of the law? It was added because of the transgressions or the sins until the seed, which is Christ, to whom the promise referred had come. The law was put into effect through angels by a mediator. Moses was that mediator that received the law. In verse 20, it says, a mediator, however, does not represent just one party, but God is one. God gave the covenant to Abraham. And that same covenant, listen, was given to us through Christ Jesus. And again, I went ahead of myself in Job chapter 9, verses 33 and 34. Job was looking for a day's man. Job was looking for this mediator. Job was looking for a go-between between God and man. Even then, Job was looking. And so the importance of this new covenant, church. Let's continue. Look at verse 7 now. And we actually come into that place now of this new covenant. If you're taking notes, you need to study Jeremiah chapter 31 because there is the prophecy of this new covenant. He begins here in verse 7, for if that first covenant had been faultless, blameless, then no place would have been sought for a second covenant. So the first covenant, if it would have been blameless, there would not have been the need for the second covenant. In other words, the first covenant failed because it could only cover man's sin. The second covenant was successful because Jesus Christ becomes the complete sacrifice and his blood is what washes away our sins. His precious blood. The Old Testament tells us without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. Now, when you go back to Genesis chapter 3, we see Adam and Eve fall from the grace of God, and they hide themselves. Remember, God comes into the cool of the garden, and he calls out for Adam. Where are you? We're naked. Why are you naked? They recognize their sin nature. Now, man in his foolishness, remember, they covered themselves with fig leaves. But then we read on, and the next thing we see is that there were skins upon them. In other words, God made the first animal sacrifice back in Genesis chapter 3, and he put skins upon Adam and Eve. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. Now, again, I told you that you need to study Jeremiah chapter 31. Let me read Jeremiah 31, verse 31. Jeremiah reads, and he says, The days, behold, the days are coming, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. So Jeremiah was already, listen, pointing to the cross. 
That was the prophecy. Now let's continue. We'll draw some more concerning this new covenant. Look at verse 8 now. Back to our text in Hebrews. Because finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And so just bringing back what Jeremiah 31, 31 says. So God, uh, through the new covenant, brings together all Jews who come to him, listen, by faith, but not only Jews, Jews and Gentiles can become one in Christ. This is what the new covenant does. We shared last week, well, if we come to saving grace by having faith in Christ and we're washed in the blood of the Lamb, what about the Old Testament saints? The Bible says that Abraham believed God by faith. We shared that Sarah believed God by faith. Abel believed God by faith. Enoch believed God by faith. And so we see the faith factor. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, it says in the New Testament, we are saved by grace through faith, not of works, lest the man should boast. Again, Adam and Eve would have killed the animal sacrifices and put skins upon themselves. That would have been a work, but they didn't do it. God made the first animal sacrifice. Now, this new covenant is expressed as we ask you to study Jeremiah chapter 31. But let me give you two passages of Scripture that are also very important because in the New Covenant, God wants to transform us. God wants to change us. God wants to change my heart. He wants to change your heart. So listen to these two verses. In Ezekiel chapter 11 and verse 19, Ezekiel writes, and these are the words of God, then I will give them one heart, and I will put a new spirit within them and take the stony heart out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. And church, all of this, the new covenant, and how does it come about? By faith, by faith. Now, two more verses, Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 26 and 27. And here was another prophecy that was pointing to the new covenant. In verse 26, Isaiah writes, I will give you a new heart. These are the words of God. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you, and I will remove from you your stony heart uh, uh, or your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Verse 27, and I will put my spirit in you and mo move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. You see, church, we can't do it. I can't do it. I can't do it for you. Calvary Chapel can't do it for you. But God is the one that does the work in you. And our mediator is Christ. He wants to change us. He wants to change you. He wants to change me. God basically is in the changing business. In the Old Testament, you would bring your animal sacrifices Every week, every month, every day. In fact, the priest we shared last week had to make a sacrifice for himself daily and then a sacrifice for the people. But my Bible says that Jesus has died once and for all. Now let's get some more out of this. Look at verse 9 now, Hebrews chapter 8. 
not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt because they did not continue in my covenant and I disregarded them. Heavy indictment here. I disregarded them saying, uh, saith the Lord. Radical statement here. Now, this new covenant will not be like the old covenant. Basically, he's saying here, I made with Isaac, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob through Moses. Listen, Moses, he says, took them and led them out of Egypt. But what happened? They did not remain faithful to my old covenant. So I turned my back on them. And the word here, I disregarded them. The Greek says, I neglected them. Why? Because they had rejected God. Remember the promises of God. Jesus said, and he takes it from the Old Testament, I will never leave you nor forsake you. The problem is we leave him. Back in Hebrews chapter 2 was the warning uh, to the Hebrew Christians that they were slipping away. They were slipping away. They were beginning to backslide. And so the warning. Now, when you look at the Hebrew Christians, they're coming to saving grace. They're coming to this new covenant. And they're coming to this new high priest, which is Christ. They're coming to this complete sacrifice now. Again, which is Christ. It's not an easy task. You see, it's very difficult to change traditions. Those of us that have come out of Catholicism, it was very difficult to change traditions. But we've always done this. But we must look at the cross. It was all complete at the cross. I disregarded them. I neglected them. Why? Because they first neglected God. They first disregarded God. There's no blessings when there's sin. I will bless obedience, God says. But I will curse disobedience. Now I want you to turn to this passage. Go to the book of Romans chapter 4. Verses 13 through 15. Again, I speak from experience because 30 years ago, when God drew us from Catholicism, it was not an easy task because of the sacraments and, and the promises and the indoctrination. And then all of a sudden I come to the place that all I have to do is trust God. All I have to do is trust in the cross. All I have to do is recognize that there is only one mediator between God and man, Jesus Christ. Church, it is so simple, but man has made it so difficult. And think about the Jews now. I mean, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they were the forefathers. They were everything. The law was everything. It was so customary. Even if I couldn't afford to bring in a bull or a goat or a sheep, I would bring in a turtle dove. I mean, that was for the poor. But I had to bring in an offering. Now, watch what it says in Romans 4. Look at verse 13. It was not through the law that Abraham and his offsprings received the promise that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. Again, Abraham came to God by faith. In verse 14, for if those who live by the law are heirs, 
Faith has no value, and the faith has no value. Uh, the promise is worthless. So if I still rely on the nature of the Old Testament, well, I need to do something. I need to make a sacrifice. You know, I need to do a work. And a lot of people think that way. If I do enough good works, I'm going to get to heaven. One old preacher said it years ago. There's a lot of good people in hell today. A lot of well-intentioned people that are in hell today. It's not about what you can do. Imagine if you're rich and you say, well, I'm just going to write a check. And, you know, a million dollars. You see it. Hollywood does it all the time. That's not going to get you into heaven. That's a good cause. I mean, that's a good humanitarian cause. But it will not get you into the kingdom of God. We are saved by grace through faith, not of works, lest the man should boast. And so, notice verse 14. For if those who live by the law are heirs, faith has no value, and the promise is worthless. Faith is worthless. Verse 15, because law brings wrath, and where there is no law, there is no transgressions. The only way to avoid breaking the law, listen now, is to have no law to break. It's a radical statement. No law. And so, in a sense, listen to me now. God has abolished the Old Testament law, but he's brought it to a completion. It's done. I, I want you to write down this verse. Because, you know, we go by Exodus chapter 20, and we have the Ten Commandments, and rightfully so. I mean, who doesn't respect and love the Ten Commandments. But in a sense, the Ten Commandments are complete now by one command. Now, just leave a marker there or just your notes. In Exodus chapter 20, we have Ten Commandments. The first four commandments are towards God. And the last six commandments are towards our fellow man. Now, keep that in mind. And listen to the one commandment we have in the New Testament or the New Covenant. In the Gospel of John, chapter 13, verse 34. A new commandment. A new commandment I give to you. These are the words of Jesus. That you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. So what is the great new commandment? Love. That love is agape love, divine love, unconditional love. Where do you find agape love? You find it at the cross. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Love is what conquers, listen, a multitude of sin. Now let's go back in our minds to Exodus chapter 20. If I have the love of God in me, if I've received his love that he gave at the cross, How can I break the Ten Commandments? Now, if I love God because he first loved me, if I've accepted his unconditional love on the cross, if I've accepted his complete sacrifice, and I'm born again of the Holy Spirit, and now I operate under one commandment, the commandment of love, God's love. And in Exodus chapter 20, it says, honor your mother and your father. I can only do that because of the love that I have for God. Secondly, thou shalt not, listen, 
murder. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife. Now, I can't do that. You can't. Any chance I would get before I was a Christian, I would steal, even if it was a little paperclip. Your taxes, you would steal by cheating, by lying. I mean, the list goes on. But I come to Christ now. How can I murder? How can I steal? How can I commit adultery against my fellow man if I truly love God? And so it's all one. It's become one at the cross. The covenant that's complete because of Christ. No longer written on tablets of stone. But now it's written upon our hearts. And we'll draw some more. Look at verse 10 now. For this is the covenant. Speaking about the new covenant. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. After those days of the Old Testament. They come to completion now in the New Testament. After those days, after the death of Christ on the cross saith the Lord, I will put my laws, listen, in their mind and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people, Jew or Gentile. And so the old covenant, the law, where we're on two tablets of stone, God's new covenant is Jesus Christ, our mediator, and we should desire the mind of Christ. And not only that, he places God, places Christ into our hearts. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul tells the Corinthians, Know you not now that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit? It's not the great edifice, Solomon's temple, Herod's temple, it's you, the body of Christ. Listen, church, years ago, when I came to that position, I, I had a hard time. Because, see, we're, we're used to these great cathedrals, these great edifices, especially when you see them in Europe. I mean, my dream was always, one day, I, I want to go to the Basilica in Rome. But, see, all of that is man-made. All of that is man-made. Man, we come to the cross. It's done. It's complete. It's complete. It's done at the cross. And he desires to tabernacle in me. He desires to tabernacle in you. Now, I want you to write down this verse. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and in verse 16, but let me set it up for you. Paul is writing to the church at Corinth. And if you know anything about the church at Corinth, they were considered a very carnal people. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, there was a brother, listen, a brother that was sleeping with his stepmother. Paul calls him a brother, but he was in sexual sin. They were such a carnal church, but that's the grace of God. So in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 2, he's teaching about spiritual wisdom. And in verse 16, Paul says that we have, listen, 
the mind of Christ. Now, be careful because I am not Christ. You are not Christ. And we're not achieving to be a Christ or a little Christ. But, man, I want to be more like Jesus. I want to have the mind of Christ. The word mind, I want to have the understanding of Christ. Now, Jesus forgave. We need to forgive. Jesus gave us mercy. We need to be merciful. Jesus loved. We need to love others. You see, it just fits. And again, there's that doctrine. There's that covenant, the covenant of love, unconditional love. He wants to place that love of God in our minds and our hearts, reiterating what we said in Ezekiel chapter 11 and Ezekiel chapter uh, 36. He wants to give us a new heart, not on the tablets of stone, but God's new covenant, Jesus Christ, placed in the heart. We take this position by faith. Now, we've been sharing this quite a bit. In Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. The new covenant, now listen to this, is based on God making us a new creation. In 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if any man be in Christ, he or she is a new creation. All things are passed away. All things have become new. God wants to change us. God wants to transform us. And through the love of God, it takes place. That's why you hear of Christians that were formerly drug addicts, alcoholics, whoremongers, prostitutes, homosexuals, lesbians. God transforms them. He changes them. The change takes place in the heart. Uh, be careful when we try to make the change outwardly. Well, what does a Christian look like? Well, what does a Christian smell like? And, and people have this concept. If I can just change the outward man. No, no, no. Change. Let God change the heart. Let God change the heart. This is why it was so effective in the mid-60s, the early 70s. It was called the Jesus Movement. Because the kids were coming with their long hair, their beards, their beads, and their, you know, sandals, and they were coming to Christ. Now, the establishment, the mainstream of the church couldn't handle it. How dare them come to church without shoes? How dare a man come into a church service with long hair? And, you know, they went on and on. They were looking at the outward man. What does God do in the heart. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. God changes us. When you look at the word repentance, it's threefold. God changes the mind, changes the heart, and he changes the direction. Maybe you were never a drug addict or an alcoholic, but maybe we were just, you know, a busybody. Maybe we were just a liar. God takes a busybody. God takes a gossiper. God takes a liar and changes them. That's a, just a beautiful picture of change. Now, let me give you this last verse, and we'll go on to verse 11 and uh, 12 and 13. In Psalm 40, verse 8, the psalmist says, I desire to do your will, O my God. Your law is written in my heart, not on tablets of stone, but God desires to, to, to write his word in my heart. That's why as we read the scriptures, as we study the Word of God, as you're doing your devotional at home, 
How many times the word of God leaps out at you? Ministers to you, not to, you know, oh, I got to share this with somebody. I got to share this with a wife or the husband. No, maybe God's speaking to you. Before I can teach the scriptures, I first have to live them. I desire to do your will, oh my God. Your law is written in my heart. Oh, that's the new covenant, church. Let's go back to our text. Look at verse 11 now. And he goes, none of them shall teach his neighbor and none his brother, saying, know, know the Lord, for all shall know me for the, from the least of them to the greatest of them. Now, concerning the law, concerning the priests, they did everything for people. We had nothing to do with it. We just would go to the, to the temple, bring in our animal sacrifices week after week, month after month, year after year. But notice verse 11. Now, I'm going to read out of the New Living Translation because it makes more sense. They will not need to teach their neighbors, nor will they need to teach their family, saying, you should know the Lord, for everyone from the least to the greatest will already know me. So God's truth, listen has a new outreach. All shall know me, those that come to know God by faith. Salvation uh, through the new covenant. Salvation to the Jew first. God's salvation uh, through the new covenant for Jew and Gentile. In Romans 10, 13, those that call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Again, here's that new covenant. Now, let's go back to the Old Testament. Write this down. Isaiah 54, verse 13. Prophecy of the new covenant. All your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. Our teacher is the Holy Spirit. Yes, God's placed me as the pastor, teacher of the church here. I'm an instrument of God. I'm a vessel of God, just as you are. But my position is to bring forth the word of God. But it's the Holy Spirit that teaches. I want you to write down this verse. I'm going to read it to you. I want you to soak it in. In John chapter 14, verse 26, Jesus said, The helper, which is the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, here's the key, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I have said to you. The Holy Spirit is my teacher. The Holy Spirit is my counselor. The Holy Spirit is the paracletos that comes alongside. He convicts me of sin. I come to saving grace. The Holy Spirit tabernacles within me. The Holy Spirit baptizes me. The Holy Spirit gives me a hunger and a thirst for righteousness. He is my teacher. Now, when we look at the Word of God, it tells us in Hebrews that the Word of God is powerful and it's sharper than a two-edged sword. Remember this verse in 2 Timothy 2.15. Paul tells Timothy, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that rightfully divides the Word of truth. The word to study has always intrigued me as a Bible teacher. Uh, the word study means to perspire. It means to toil. It means to sweat. Because the word, uh, 
to study is agonize, agonizo. And so we get into the word. That's what we've been doing here uh, this morning. And so important. But it's the Holy Spirit that will teach me. It's the Holy Spirit that brings all things to my remembrance. I, I tell you, I, I wish you could spend time when I'm putting the studies together because it's like the Holy Spirit is just directing everything. I study, I read, I look at the commentary, and I pray, and God just puts it all together. And it teaches me. And so the Holy Spirit is our teacher. Let's go back to our text. We come to the conclusion now, verses 12 and 13. And he says, For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds. I will remember no more. The new covenant church brings us to the law of grace. God in the Old Testament covenant forgives our sins. By grace through faith, he forgives our sins. Listen, past, present, and future. Last week, we shared in the promises of God that he forgives our sins. Remember this? Past, present, and future. And we shared how the psalmist says that God takes our sins as far as the east is to the west, and he casts them into the sea. Now, the enemy brings back my sin to, to my remembrance. The enemy brings back your sin. He'll even date it. You remember what you did in 19 such and such? You remember that day, that time? And he brings it back to your memory. It's covered, listen, under the blood, if we have come to saving grace. Now, in verse 13, in that he says, we come to the conclusion, a new covenant. He has made the first covenant, and this is hard if you're a Hebrew Christian. He has made the first covenant obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Scholars believe that the book of Hebrews was written around 64 to 68 AD. If so, look how close it was to 70 A.D. The temple that they put such an emphasis on. The sacrifices and the priesthood that they put such an emphasis on. Titus and the Roman army was going to come and level Jerusalem and scatter the Christians or scatter the Jews. And there would be no more temple. It, historically, you know the story. They placed the sieges against the temple. The Jews had locked themselves in there, barricaded themselves. Romans couldn't get in. But somebody had been shooting, you know, flaming arrows, and the temple caught on fire. And the gold in the temple began to melt and began to seep through the crevices of these great massive stones. And like money, like gold, like silver, what it does to the spirit of man, they went and toppled those down, took down the temple that God said would be taken down. The prophecy. And so the time was coming, and the emphasis such of the law, it was going to vanish away. Now, let's look at the new covenant. I, I want to show you the verse. Turn with me. We're going to conclude here. Go to the book of Mark, the gospel, chapter 14, verses uh, 22 through 26. And this coincides. You've been here when we, have, uh, we partake of communion, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 
the communion service. Do these things in remembrance of me. We're going to conclude here. In Mark chapter 14, look at verse 22. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed it, and broke it. And he gave it to them. And he said, take, eat, this is my body. He says, then he took the cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them. And they drank from it. Verse 24. And he said to them, underline this. This is my blood of the new covenant, church. The new covenant, which is shed for many. Verse 25, assuredly, I say to you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. The new covenant church is the cross of Jesus Christ and his complete sacrifice. This is my blood, he says, of the new covenant. No longer the animal sacrifice. No longer the priesthood. But Jesus becomes our complete sacrifice. Jesus becomes our last high priest, our complete high priest. Jesus is the Son of God, the Savior of the world. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. His blood is all I need. That's the new covenant, church. And the covenant that's based upon Christ's blood that he gave at Calvary, and it was done because of love. His love. And that's what saves us, church. And so it's not derogatory, the abolishment of the Old Testament. It's the completion. It's the picture of what was to come. And right now, in the heavenly places, is what Moses was told to build. And Jesus sits at the right hand of God. He makes intercession for us. This is why he's the better covenant. He's the better sacrifice. He's the complete sacrifice. Jesus is all that I need. Let's all stand. We'll end with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your goodness, your grace, your love, and your mercy. Lord, I thank you that the old covenant was a picture, was a shadow, was a copy of the things to come. And Lord, we know that you sit at the right hand of God. You make intercession for us. We know that you are the complete mediator. But I thank you, Lord, that you've made it possible for us now to come to the cross freely. And Lord, I pray if there's anybody here who's never made that commitment to you, they need to make that commitment to you, not to Pastor Bob or to Calvary Chapel, but to you. And so I, I want to give that opportunity. Maybe you're here this morning. You've never received Christ as your Lord and Savior once and for all. It's a simple prayer of faith, church. I can't save you, neither can this church save you or any other church, but you must free, freely, you must come to him. With every eye closed, every head bowed, if you'd like to receive Christ this morning, by faith, I'll just say a simple prayer right there where you're at. Raise your hand real quick, and I'll say a prayer of faith with you. Anybody here, raise your hand. As I look around, anybody, before we close, you haven't come to saving grace, raise your hand, and I'll pray for you. Anybody? Praise the Lord, then. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. If we're all Christian, praise God. Father, I thank you, Lord. 
I thank you for your goodness, your grace, your love, and your mercy. I thank you, Lord, that each one of us are born again of the Holy Spirit. But, Lord, maybe we just haven't raised our hand. I don't know. Only you know the heart of man. And so, Father, I pray still that they would not leave here without you. But if we're all Christian, then I rejoice in that. Lord, bless your beautiful people as they've come this morning. Give us a hunger and a thirst for righteousness. Give us a hunger and a thirst for your word, Lord. Father, bless the offerings this morning. As you've given to us, we give back a portion. Lord, prepare uh, Mike and Ziggy uh, for Friday, Lord, as they're going to renew their vows. What a, what a blessing. And Lord, that we could all be here to witness a glorious event. We thank you, Lord. We praise you. We worship you in Jesus' name. Amen.